0: All right. Well, we are continuing our study in Book of Numbers. This is the fourth book of the Old Testament: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And uh, we're going to We we took a break from it last week to think some about death, and grief, and and mourning. But we want to resume our study. So Numbers chapter twenty-one. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin. We've mentioned this over and over and over, but it's just good to keep this in front of us that the original title of this book was not Numbers. That was assigned later, given later. The original Hebrew title in the Hebrew Bible is uh, In the Wilderness. And it's, it's an apt title. This is the group of people who came out of Egypt in the Exodus, the Passover in the Exodus, and uh, they have not yet reached the Promised Land. So this is this window of time, about 40 years, where the Israelites are in the wilderness. And really, this is an account of two different generations, not just one. And, you know, in 40 years you're going to have at least a couple of generations. And God actually makes a point of this, and, and there's some background of this. The generation of adults who had been slaves, who had been enslaved in Egypt, and came out during the Exodus, after the initial celebration and, and euphoria, pretty quickly fell into lots of grumbling and complaining, and, and rebellion. We're going to talk about that more in a second. And one of the particular things that they said in their, in their rebellion was, and they really, they said this not only to Moses, but they were sort of looking over him saying this to God, is that you brought us out in the wilderness so that our children would die. You brought us out in the wilderness for our children to die. And you know, you do think about it. If somebody said you've got to go, if you have a newborn baby and you've got to go on a two-week camping trip with any gear you want with a newborn baby, I would think you'd be panicky, but they don't have all that equipment. They left on fairly short notice. You brought us out here for our children to die, and as, as a very severe discipline, God says this, all of you who said that, with the exception of two men, Joshua and a guy named Caleb, all the rest of you you will be the ones who die in the wilderness. And your children that you said were going to perish out here, they will grow up and they will enter the promised land. So you've really got two generations in this account called in the wilderness. And the reason I'm highlighting that is because by this point in the book, we've reached the second generation. They're grown-ups now. So the people you're going to hear talk in this, in this passage are not the first. They're the second. Now, the, this generation who were children when they came out, they've had a front row seat to to their parents rebelling. They've had a front row seat to what does it look like when God's people, you know, our parents, when they complain, when they grumble, when they rebel, how does God respond to that? Because God has responded with some big, splashy things. And He's made it very clear, I don't want you to do that. As they've watched that, and grown up with that how does the second generation do cuz you know the the kids always think they're doing it better than the parents right so how does the second generation do in the wilderness well let's look at that numbers 21 beginning in verse 4 and this would be about the 40th year they are coming to the end of their time in the wilderness He would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask this morning that, as we open your Word, that we would not feel distant and removed, and and really at some fundamental level that, that we won't feel different than the people in this passage that we won't be snobbish and look down on them and think, I would never do that in those circumstances. We pray that even as we look at their lives in this account, that we would see ourselves. But we ask that we would see you as you really are. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I came across an article a while back, and um, it was talking about counterculture. And it was referring back to the time, you know, in American history that we call the countercultural, um, sort of countercultural movement, hippie movement of the late 1960s. And uh, it, it, there's a quote here by Tom Wolfe. Tom Wolfe, novelist, done uh, written essays, and he wrote about something that happened really at the, at sort of the ground zero of the American hippie movement. You know, the sort of ground zero was the Hate Ashbury district of San Francisco, and. I got to visit it about 30 years after all that happened. It was still pretty hippie ish, but this was just in the middle of it. And these are not faux hippies, these are real hippies. Because you do have faux hippies sometimes. All right, here, here's what it says uh, The article says this first, and then it quotes Tom Wolfe. The hippies' aversion <coughs> to modern hygiene. Oh, excuse me, excuse me. In the late ni- 1960s, a group of hippies living in the Haight Ashbury district of San Francisco, decided that hygiene was a middle class hang up that they could best do without. So they decided to live without it. For example, baths and showers, while not actually banned, were frowned upon. Uh, the essayist and novelist Tom Wolfe was intrigued by these hippies, who he said, quote, sought nothing less than to sweep aside all codes and restraints of the past and start out from zero. So they do that, and some really weird consequences, shockingly, follow. And, and here's what Tom Wolfe writes. Quote, at the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, there were doctors who were treating diseases no living doctor had ever encountered before. Diseases that had disappeared so long ago that they had never even picked up Latin names such as the mange, the grunge, the itch, the twitch, the thrush, the scroff. This is the worst one. The Rot. And, uh, and what Tom Wolfe called this exercise of, you know, people in the second half of the 20th century being told, you must bathe. You know, you must at some point, semi-regularly, wash your body and your hair. He called it the great relearning. And it's pretty amazing because you think about, all right, I, there's a lot of stuff that Americans don't, I mean, that uh, human beings don't know. But I, I thought we pretty much had that one down. You know, I, I think, I, we thought the human race pretty much that it was a slam dunk, wash semi-regularly, if not, if not every day. No. no, had to relearn it. Something that basic. And you, you can look at that, again, and sort of laugh at it or, or, or look down on it. But that's a visible picture of something invisible in every person in this room. And it's that we learn things and we come to grips with things that are true and it's like it leaks out of us. And if you want just a really practical demonstration of this that I think every person in this room can relate to, I bet that right now, if I could talk to you one-on-one, there's, there's some family member that you keep having the same fight with over and over and over and over. It could be a spouse... It could be a parent. It could be a sibling. And you feel like we, we keep having the same fight over and over. And, and, and on top of that, I bet you would say uh, we have the fight, and then one or both of us come to our senses, and then we sort of shake our heads and feel like, oh, wh- wh- why, why did I do that again? Why, why did we do that again? It never works to raise my voice like that. It, it never works to speak to you in anger like that. It, it never works to like take the most negative interpretation of you possible. Uh, to call you names, think the worst of you. It, it ne- So like, I'm not going to do that anymore. And what do we do? And again, I I, I think everybody in the room can relate, but I mean spouses in particular. I would say most husbands and wives in this room feel like we are having the same fight over and over and over. And a lot of that has to do with we know the truth and it just it's like it just leaks out of us. And that's all of us. Now, now what I just described is the human condition, but I I want to say this is true of God's people. And when you read the Bible, you see it over and over in basically every book, that the truth in God's people who've been rescued, who've been redeemed and supernaturally changed. It's like the truth leaks out. And I hope that we can relate to this. And I want to say this. That I'm, I'm, I try to say in here, we never assume that you already believe. I don't, I don't want to stand up here and assume that every person in the room is a believer in Jesus and believes that the stuff in the Bible is true. We don't assume that of you. And if you're just starting to check this out, just starting to engage it, I'm so glad that you're here. And we do want to be a resource and a help in any way that we can. But a lot of you, a lot of you would say, yeah, I am one of God's people. Do you find this in your life? That I learn, and then I have to relearn, and then I have to relearn. Because if so, we should relate to these people. Something that I like to say to you, a lot of you have heard me say this, is that a tool I'd love for you to have in your toolbox when you come to the Bible is any passage that you're looking at. This can work for a poem. It can work for a psalm. It can work for a genealogy, believe it or not. It can work for the Gospels. Ask that passage two questions. first question is, what does this passage show me about us, about people who need redeeming, who need saving and rescue? Second, what does this passage show me about God, who does the redeeming, who does the rescuing and the saving? So let's, let's use this passage as an opportunity to do that. Those are the two points. What does it show us about God's people who need the rescue, the redeeming? What does it show us about God? Who does it? So let's start off with the people. And like I said, you got two generations. First generation are the ones that came out of Egypt, the second generation, and and that's who's in this passage, they're the ones who will actually cross the Jordan River and go into the promised land. Now, what have we seen all through numbers with that first generation? Grumble, complain, rebel. What do they tend to grumble and complain? And rebel about. And the two biggies are circumstances are hard. I don't feel good. And I want answers. I don't like the circumstances I'm in. And the second, leadership. We don't like the people that God set up as leaders. We should be leaders. Or that guy over there should be a leader. But not the person that God raised up. Circumstances, leadership. And, and this is really important. Over and over... God has made a specific point of this. When you complain about that, and you think you're just complaining at the object, you know, I'm complaining about thirst, or hunger, or why is Moses in charge? When you do that, you're actually shooting over it. You're shooting at God. When you complain and grumble, you're shooting at God who's behind all of it. So how does the second generation do? Front row seat... God doesn't like that. doesn't work out. Learn. Look in verse 5. And the people, second generation, spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. They're doing not just something similar to what their parents did. They are doing exactly what their parents did. So I want to ask you a question. And this question helped me even as I sat with this passage this past week. What do you wish they had said? If you could choose for them how they responded, how do you wish they had responded? And I'm not saying I can give the perfect ideal gold standard, but what if they had said something like this? Moses, we are in pain, hunger, we thirst. We don't know when we're leaving. We don't know what to say to our children sometimes. And it's a heavy weight to bear. But we've seen God provide, and we see that He is always faithful... And we see that He keeps His promises. And so we're going to trust Him. But we're hurting. And we're confused. Don't you wish they had said something like that? But then you think about, what about me? What what do you complain about? And this thing that comes up more and more in, in my conversations... With some of you, I know that conversations you have with each other, I find myself saying what I'm about to say from up front more than I used to, is that waiting is a form of suffering. Is there something you're having to wait on right now that makes you, not makes you, that is your opportunity for complaining? I'm tired of waiting about what? About singleness? Or the state of my marriage. I'm tired of unemployment. I'm tired of chronic pain. I'm so tired of hurting in my body. I'm tired of emotional pain. I'm tired of family pain. I'm tired of not having a timetable and a clear flow chart for fill in the blank. What what do you wish we would say in those moments? While, while we're like here and somewhat sane and cool headed, what do you wish we were saying? Don't you wish we were saying, "God, I hurt. I hurt. I want this to be resolved and it's not resolved. I want this to change, and it hasn't changed. And I know you're God. I know you are faithful. I know you keep your promises." But I hurt. But we almost never respond that way. We complain. Can you, can you see yourself in this passage? And again and again and again, God shows, I am faithful. You can trust me. I am with you. Trust me even though you don't understand the flow chart. Okay? Not okay. Okay? Not Okay? How about this one as an example of God's people having to learn things over and over? Uh, You may or may not have ever heard this, but this actually has something to do with the book of Numbers. The Bible doesn't talk about it a lot, and I really have never heard a sermon about it, but Numbers chapter 12, verse, wow, I'm rubbing my elbow, and I'm not through with my sermon yet. I've been told that I only rub this part of my elbow when I'm about to finish the sermon, so I'm sorry if I threw anyone off (laughs) just now. We're not done yet. Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, says that when Moses' wife, Zipporah, died, he married again. And he married a woman who was a Cushite. And the evidence seems to point to the fact that she was black. She was black-skinned. She was from a part of Africa, where that would almost certainly be the case. Now, that's there's this other piece of evidence in the passage that makes me think that was exactly the case. Moses' sister Miriam uses that as an opportunity to challenge his leadership and oppose him. And this other little piece of info is very interesting to me, and it's been very interesting to a lot of people, that God disciplines Miriam in a very interesting way. You know what he does? He turns her skin sheet white. Almost as if to say since you are concerned about dark-skinned people in the community of Israel, let's make sure the lines are drawn clearly. And he turns her skin sheet white. Boy, isn't it great that God's people learned all about racism after that? I mean, what, what do we wish the people of God, and especially once we have the whole New Testament, What do you wish the people of God had been saying clearly, consistently for the last 2,000 years or so? We are all descended from Adam. All nations come from one man. Therefore, we are all neighbors and all people bear the image of God. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God sends His Son, Jesus Christ, to be Savior of whom? Whoever will believe. And the vision of heaven is every tongue and tribe and people and nation, every race, every skin color is there, saved by Jesus. Amen? And we wish we had said that more clearly all the time till it was just in the water supply and it leaks out. This past week, someone shared with me, I'm going to be as vague as possible, but he had sat for hours with an older man who's a Christian, who's a leader in his church, sat with this man and spent hours trying to convince him that the alt-right actions in Charlottesville two weekends ago were bad. With a Christian. He spent hours trying to get him to conceive that point that it was bad. It just leaks out of us. And you know, that should humble us. Christians are not... Here's how Christians typically come across in the culture. I'm right, you're wrong, shut up. Shouldn't we be humbled as we see ourselves? So what about God? What do we see about God? And I'm going to give a both and here. We talk about that a lot at in our church, this both and of God. Is God just or is He merciful? Yes. Is God wrathful or loving and compassionate? Yes. What's the both and in this passage? Well, how about God's severity and God's mercy? Where's the the severity? Uh, After the complaint, verse 6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Why serpents? Now, there were snakes in the wilderness. There's actually one passing reference in Deuteronomy to fiery serpents in the wilderness. But there's, there's actually been scholarly ink spilled about this. What does it mean, fiery serpents? Does that mean, is the fire the effect of the bite, like burning pain, is the fire the color of the serpents? That they appeared to look flame-colored and it seems that a lot of that discussion is misguided. Because the term for, for burning, fiery, is actually an Egyptian loan word. And I got to dig into this a little bit this week. There was one scholar in particular, as I was reading his stuff, not only was he talking about this, he had pictures of this, that if not the deity, maybe the deity was the sun, but one of the great Egyptian deities was the serpent. In fact, Pharaoh's crown, Pharaoh's headpiece, guess what was front and center? The cobra, the serpent. And there's not only Egyptian poems and songs and literature, but there's Egyptian artwork that depicts serpents who breathed fire on behalf of Egypt on the enemy. And it is visually as if God says, all right, since you are being clear... That I, I am not a, a deliverer you can trust. I'm not a savior who can really rescue you. And you want to go to the rescuers, the deliverers of Egypt. Let me send them to you. Severe. Now, I don't think complaining is that big a deal. I think it's just kind of human nature. I don't think it's that big a deal to say, Hey, I'm hungry and I'm thirsty and I'm angry about it. God's severity. Part of the glory of God is that He hates sin. You know why He hates sin? Because it destroys everything. It ruins everything. You and me and the world. And He's emotionally invested in it. And He is severe toward it. And God's mercy. It says that many people died. And the people come and say... Pray for us to take the serpents away from us. By the way, verse 7 is not like a really high-water mark of repentance. Pray that it will stop. That's not real brokenness over sin, I would say. However, verse 8, The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent. And again, what that seems to mean is not so much fire-colored. Make a serpent that depicts the serpents of Egypt in their artwork, in their temples, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. In verse 9. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a ser- serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And, and, and what's not there in the account is that you didn't have to touch it. You didn't have to say this thing. Especially if you had if been bitten in the foot or the leg. All you had to do was look. But why would you look? You had to take God at His word. And if you would just take God at His word and respond you were healed. When you didn't deserve to be healed, you were healed. When Adam read that passage from John chapter 3, there you are, earlier, Jesus is speaking with a religious leader who should have this stuff down pat, and he doesn't have it down pat. He doesn't understand basic things, just like us, because it leaks out. And Jesus reaches back into the book of Numbers and He says this. In the same way that the bronze serpent was lifted up in the the wilderness, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. And by the way, you know what the next verse is? Right after Jesus talks about the bronze serpent from the book of Numbers, the next thing He says is, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes... Plus what? Plus nothing. No hoops to jump through. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. Go go back to that bronze serpent. Whatever it looked like, they've actually found things that look like this from that part of the world from that time. That bronze serpent up on the pole, however it looked, Was that a picture of God's severity or a picture of God's mercy? Both. Here's what you deserve. You deserve the fiery serpents. But I'm going to rescue you from the fiery serpents. Jesus says, what is that pointing ahead to? To the greater sign of deliverance, which is what? The cross of Jesus Christ. And when you have... A perfect man. A perfect man. A loving, airtight, consistent, there for you always, love God, love people, wholehearted man, naked, bleeding, lacerated, beat to a pulp, spiked to a cross, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that a visual of God's wrath or His love? Both. Because we feel like complaining is not great, but it's not murder. Everybody complains. How big a deal is complaining? That big. I don't sleep around. I lust. I have a pulse. How big a deal is that? I'm not acting on it. It's that big a deal. I don't embezzle, I don't cheat on taxes. I bend the truth once in a while like everyone does. It's not that big a deal. It's that big a deal. God's severity. God's love. I don't want my wrath to fall on you. My son will bear my wrath. My son will drink the cup of wrath so that you can drink the cup of what? Of blessing. But you'll have to take me at my word. Have you taken God at His word? That something greater than the bronze serpent was lifted up, the Son of God Himself. And that without jumping through a hoop, without praying an incantation, without traveling to some part of the world and touching something, that just taking Him at His word, your sins will be taken away. Your guilt will be removed. You'll be clean in God's sight and have eternal life, not I'm going to have eternal life, you will possess it then. Today is the day to look. But let me say this too, and just come in for a landing here. Because uh, as I was reading this, this scholar whose background is in Egyptology and Egyptian history and all that, he pointed out something else that I, I just, I'd never heard this before, and it made the passage even more powerful and beautiful. Is, again, not only in Egyptian writings, but you can see this in Egyptian artwork, that a practice of the Egyptians is that they would take a depiction of a nation that was their enemy. Like, an, like they would take an image of their God, not, not the Egyptian God, the opponent's God, and they would affix it to a pole. And they would carry it with them, maybe even in the battle. It's called sympathetic magic. We're going, to take, we're going to use your God against you. So they would put the opponent's God up on a pole and go in, and it was a way of saying, we are breaking the power of your God. Okay, Just let it wash over you that God says to people saying, let us go back to Egypt. There was food in Egypt. Things were better in Egypt. Egypt will take care of us. And God says, put the Egyptian deity on a pole at my command and look to it. What was God saying? I break the power of the false gods. Do you know what that means for people like you and me? Is that the work of Jesus Christ is not just to take away our guilt, our sin, but to break the power of it. Do you come from generations of complainers? You don't have to be controlled by complaining. Do you come come from generations of racism? Most of us do. And then we show up with what's already in our heart. We don't have to be controlled by it. Our God is mighty to save, not only to forgive, but to break the power of our false gods. Your God might be vodka. Your God might be your own kids. Your God might be comfort. Your God might be rationality. To break the power of the false gods and say, I can save you. Trust me. Amen. Let's pray. Father, for this Your Word, thank You. And how we wish that we could sit before You, stand before You, and say that we're good learners, but we're, we're just slow to remember and quick to forget. As we live our lives in this wilderness, we cry out to you and we say, this wilderness is, di- <clears throat> is difficult. Father, you are God. You will be faithful. You will keep all your promises. We can trust you. Would you give us the eyes of faith to look to your beloved, lift it up on the cross for us. Grant us cleansing and grant us change. We ask in his name. Amen.